From 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR, this is Like Effect. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Today, we'll look at how anti-Semitism has evolved to include avid support of some Jewish communities and vilification of others. Then we'll explore how the end of a transportation service for people with disabilities is impacting their ability to get around. Right as the taxi program is about to sunset, about to close out as it did at the end of September, the van service begins to fail, critically fail. Plus, NPR host Scott Detrow talks about his approach to politics coverage in a swing state like Wisconsin and his personal connection to the state. Obviously, uh, Wisconsin is a very important state for the stuff that I cover. So when I when I'm here reporting stories, it's always nice to feel like a little bit like, okay, I know this place really well. All that's coming up on Lake Effect. But first, here are today's headlines. This is Like Effect from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Thanks for joining us today. The United States has been undergoing a racial reckoning. Many organizations have been incorporating diversity and equity training and attempting to grapple with the legacy of racial injustice in our nation. But celebrating diversity can have its own pitfalls, according to Dr. Keith Kahn Harris, author of Strange Hate, Anti-Semitism, Racism, and the Limits of Diversity. His work explores how anti-Semitism has evolved in a way that allows people to pick and choose the Jewish communities they identify with and those they decry. Con Harris was in Milwaukee earlier this year and spoke with Lake Effect's Joy Powers then about his work. This is a really difficult conversation to prepare for, in part because it feels like the language around it needs to be so precise. First, I'd I'd like to dig into this idea of selective anti-Semitism. What does that look like? The old-fashioned kind of anti-Semitism, which of course still exists, was a kind of equal opportunities hater. (laughs) All Jews were unacceptable and all Jews needed to be opposed. Today, that is not the predominant way that anti-Semitism manifests itself, although, as I say, it does still exist. What is more common is a practice of hugging some Jews close and rejecting others, identifying with certain kinds of Jewish tradition, supporting and showing solidarity with those sorts of Jews who hold to those traditions, and rejecting those who do not. That is far more common to the more total kind of anti-Semitism that uh, we are perhaps more familiar with. It's interesting that this idea of celebrating diversity can, in some ways, give people an avenue for categorizing Jewish people into you know, whatever kinds of group they may want. How are we seeing this kind of selective anti-Semitism play out? Well, the first thing to say is that while I'm primarily interested in anti-Semitism, that's what I do a lot of my writing on, and of course I am a Jew and interested in Jewish issues, but that said, selective racism, selective anti-racism is a wider phenomenon than just anti-Semitism, although perhaps it's more developed with regard to anti-Semitism than other forms of racism. The same is true for diversity and celebrations of diversity. In a lot of corners of the world, diversity is treated sometimes as a nice word, as a happy word, as something to celebrate, as something to take pride in, in something to highlight. 
Now, I'm not saying that that is necessarily a bad thing. Indeed, there are plenty of diversities that uh, I celebrate myself, and I am certainly not a champion of homogeneity. But what I am writing about is how there is a bit of a sting in the tail of diversity. And there is sometimes a certain type of naivety about diversity and how far it extends. Diversity isn't just about the nice things. Diversity is about the difficult things too. Humans differ from each other, ethnically, religiously, racially, culturally, in whatever way, not just in our cooking or in our costumes or things like that, but also in the values that we hold, in the ideologies that we are we are bound to. And for those who celebrate diversity, when they encounter those bits of diversity that are much harder to accept, there's often a failure to really face them, engage with them. And Jews are perhaps, certainly in recent years, our internal diversity is very much on show to the world. We are not a quiet people. We are an outspoken people. And when Jews try and speak for all Jews, there will always be another set of Jews who say, no, you don't represent us. And I think there is great awareness now, particularly in the social media age, of the sheer variety of Jewish traditions, particularly when it comes to the politics of Israel and Zionism and the politics of anti-Semitism. And what that means is that unwittingly, Jews can sometimes offer themselves, I should say ourselves, up as a kind of buffet, a smorgasbord. So if you don't like one set of Jews, there's always another one. And sometimes it's almost like we're competing to be the favoured kind of Jew. I, I think that's an interesting part of this conversation. Um, as I was reading about what your lecture would be about, I, I was describing it to a friend and I, I said to him, I sense what he is saying, but it's also very hard to describe. What are some examples that you use to describe this phenomenon? So I was very aware that I've been speaking at sort of a, a quite abstract level. And of course, there are many concrete examples of how this actually works. And I'll choose examples from two different directions. Uh, one example would be an American one with Christian Zionists, people from the evangelical community who see themselves as defenders of Israel and defenders of the Jewish community. Now, they are welcomed by many in the Jewish community and many in, in Israel, particularly those on the right of the Jewish community and on the Israeli political right, because they often have very similar views about what Israel should be, what sort of country it should be. However, particularly to this still a liberal majority of American Jews, this kind of alliance with Christian uh, Zionist people like John Hagee, for example, can be quite disturbing because certainly those sorts of people like Hagee sometimes reject those kinds of Jews who are not what they want them to be who are more liberal. And more broadly, you do see on the, the Christian right in America, you do see in some cases the use of what is close to or even absolutely is anti-Semitic rhetoric about certain kinds of Jews, particularly George Soros. 
So there is this mixture of love and hate, <laughs> love for certain kinds of Jew that is convenient and hate for a kind of Jew that is not convenient. The other example is on the left of the political spectrum. And here I'll talk about events in the UK in the last few years, when in 2015, the Labour Party in Britain that had for many years been and become a bit like the Democratic Party in the sense that it was it was very centrist, was very unexpectedly taken over by the election of a new Labour leader who was who was fairly far left, Jeremy Corbyn, and that for the next five or so years until he was eventually resigned his office after the general election loss in December two thousand and nineteen. There was this very, very toxic and very, very difficult conflict that emerged between UK Jewish communal organisations and the Labour Party. And the accusation was that Corbyn himself, while the accusation that he was anti-Semitic wasn't always made, at the very least he was accused of being blind or even supportive to those who were in the party, for example, particularly within the Palestinian Solidarity Movement, of which Corbyn was a, was a long-standing activist. And in response, both Corbyn himself and his defenders pointed to the fact that there was a, a small, but certainly not insignificant section of the Jewish community, that Corbyn had very good, very warm relations going back decades, which was the usually anti-Zionist secular Jewish left. And that meant that often the controversy about anti-Semitism in the Labour Party was often a Jew versus Jew conflict between Jewish defenders of Corbyn and Jewish accusers of Corbyn. So there was this very selective dynamic that was very, very difficult and ultimately stirred up conflict, not just between Jews and non-Jews, but between Jews themselves. Now, getting to really the heart of your lecture, how do we engage with the diversity in the Jewish community in a way that also does not reinforce this selective anti-Semitism? One of the things I'm going to be talking about is a particular project that I was involved in. So my book on anti-Semitism, Selective Anti-Semitism, called Strange Hate, came out in 2019. And last year, in 2022, a very different book came out, which is a book of portraits and personal accounts of British Jews designed to showcase its diversity. That book had a very different genesis, and it's a much happier book as a you know because it's not a book about anti-semitism but i suddenly felt at one point when the book was close to publication i said hang on might be a bit of a hypocrite here am i presenting a catalog of jews for people to choose their favorite one from but one of the things that i i think counteracts my worries is that the book included both portraits and also interviews with jews and when you hear their words you realize that people are complicated and that people have ambivalence and also that people in the Jewish community are often struggling to be Jewish, sometimes because of anti-Semitism, sometimes because of pressures from their own community. And what I hope that book does is at the very least, because it shows people at their most individual, means that you don't see them as stereotypes or as representing a section of the Jewish community.
Dr. Keith Kahn Harris is a senior lecturer at Leo Beck College, a rabbinical seminary in London. He's also a fellow of the Institute for Jewish Policy Research and the author of Strange Hate, Anti-Semitism, Racism, and the Limits of Diversity. Kahn Harris spoke with Like Effect's Joy Powers earlier this year. Did you know you can listen to Like Effect as a podcast? Just search for Like Effect wherever you get your podcast to download and listen on demand. You can also follow WUWM on Instagram, where you'll find videos and pictures from news stories and Lake Effect interviews. A transportation service that served people in Milwaukee County with disabilities ended this fall, leaving some without a way to get around. We'll learn about why the program ended and the shortcomings of alternate transportation options. But first, we'll speak with a Milwaukee man about his experience being diagnosed with Lou Gehrig's disease. That's coming up on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. Listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. The last couple of years have been full of big changes for Lee Olson. His home in Milwaukee's Tippecanoe neighborhood has been refitted to accommodate his wheelchair. New ramps, changes to door frames, and removing molding to make sure he can get around. He's had to learn how to use a wheelchair in a short time frame, and he and his wife Erin even bought a new car to accommodate the new chair. All of this because Lee was diagnosed with ALS. ALS, also known as Lou Gehrig's disease, is a degenerative disease that affects a person's ability to move their body. It's unclear why it happens. It isn't generally linked to any family history or exposure. But the disease moves very quickly. Most people can expect to live two to five years after symptoms appear. Lake Effect's Joy Powers went to Lee's home this summer to learn about his journey with ALS. What started to happen where you went, I'm not feeling well, things don't seem quite right? Um, so I got COVID in January of 2021. Took I was like, I'm going to work for a month, just basically in bed. Just body felt so heavy, couldn't get around, recovered. I remember still taking Dakota, our, our pity, to the dog park and being able to walk around and be fine. Got two boosters in March and April. You know, felt fine, nothing, noticed anything. And then June of 2021, I think I fell like 12 times. I would be walking in the house, reaching for something and just collapse. Or I'd be in the backyard mowing the lawn and I would turn to cut a different way and I would just fall down. Some of the times I could get up. Other times I'd have to crawl to stairs, multiple feet, like crawling across the backyard. Like if Aaron wasn't home. And I didn't have my cell phone on me to call somebody. And then it just got worse from June on. Yeah. When you finally went to the doctor about this, what was that experience like? What, what did, did they seem to know what was going on? Did they have thoughts? Did you have to go through all these tests? It was a frustrating 16 months of going to doctors, getting MRIs. Cat scans, PET scans. Oh, geez, the what's the other one in the back that hurts a lot? Or oh, Spinal Tap, not yeah. as not as good as the band. 
very terrible. <laughs> and probably other things that I can't even think of. And getting the results with different doctors and saying, oh, everything looks good. We didn't really notice anything there. There, there we see a little hole in your spine that be, could be causing this issues, but most likely that's just regular degenerative of the spinal column that anybody would have from an accident or childhood backyard wrestling. Not that I did backyard <laughs> wrestling, but if someone did, possibly could be caused. Eventually just needed to get a second opinion and we switched over to UW in Madison, ran a couple tests, combined with all the other test results I had. And Dr. Fertique, the neurologist there, was able to diagnose me with ALS in less than two months. And so my diagnosis came in December 6th of 2022. So this is all really recent. What has this journey been like so far? Uh, I've learned that I'm very loved, very supportive, because so many people have stepped up to help Aaron and I with many tasks, chores around the house, cleaning up the backyard, taking Dakota for a walk, getting me to doctor's appointments. In that respect, it's been, it's been a good journey knowing that I'm well taken care of. But on the other hand, it is incredibly frustrating to have this disease and not really be able to do much of it as it is a progressive disease that's only going to continue to take away my everyday functions until I pass. Um, and being a very short life expectancy with this disease from onset of symptoms, they usually say it's a two to five year life expectancy. So knowing that these symptoms started just about two years ago, knowing that I'm in that window already is heartbreaking, not ready to leave this earth. I still have lots of things that I wanted to, so that's rough, but I do my best to stay positive and live every day, just a day at a time, and just keep focusing on today and what I can do instead of the negatives. And I think I do a good job of that. It's like a like worldly comic relief. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Excuse me, plane. Oh, I'm talking about my <laughs> deadly disease here. Can you rewrote? Yeah. For people who might not know anything about what this disease is, is like, how do you how do you describe having this? Do you feel like you exist in the world differently? I I could feel that way. I could feel an outcast, or that my disease is separated from me, from my friends and family, but I don't feel that way at all. I'm still, I'm still Lee Olson. I'm just in a wheelchair. So now I have six wheels instead of two legs to get me around. But it's still me, same stupid jokes, same loving the punk music, especially the music from Milwaukee and Brewers and eating. <laughs> sitting in the backyard, nature. I still love all that stuff. Nothing um, about my interests and loves have changed at all. So this disease will slowly take away a lot of me, but it won't take away me entirely. I, I guess this is kind of an odd question. Have you met many other people who have ALS? Have you met 
other people who are going through this? I really haven't. I've been offered to join support groups, whether virtual or in person, or meet up with people that we, we've we met a few people, or Aaron's met a few people. So we have people like in our, our group. I have been reluctant to do some of the support groups because I don't really have a mirror in front of me ever, so I don't see what I look like. So I can just, ignorance is, ignorance is bliss, I guess. I can, I don't have to know what I look like. I don't know if I look different because I don't see that. And so sometimes when thinking about like joining a support group, I'm just hesitant to see someone like further down the road. That could be scary and that's understandable. And it's like no offense to anyone else, but I'm part of my journey is I'm not ready to see other people yet. But on Friday, we're going to the tailgate before the game and there will be people there with ALS. And I'm excited and nervous to, to see people, but also know that, hey, these people are doing well. They're coming to the game. They're excited to eat a hamburger or three and eat some chips and drink a Sprite and then go watch the Brewers beat the A's. So there's there's plenty of positive things to look forward to in, in seeing other people with ALS. Sure. Well, Lee, thank you so much for taking the time out to chat with me. It's been really, it's been really amazing and, and sharing so much of yourself. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Lee Olson is a Milwaukeean diagnosed with ALS, and he spoke with Leg Effects Joy Powers in June, ahead of the Chase and a Cure tailgate at American Family Field. The tailgate was held in honor of Lou Gehrig, a baseball player whose public battle with ALS brought greater awareness to the disease. Since 2000, Milwaukee County has provided on-demand taxi transportation for people with disabilities, but that program ended in September this year. While there are still transportation options available for people with disabilities through the county transit system, those alternatives have failed to consistently arrive on time. Now, transit advocates are worried about their ability to move freely in the future. Lake Effect Sam Woods spoke with transit advocates, county officials, and journalists to find out why this paratransit taxi program ended, how people who use the program are adjusting, and what the future holds. Kevin Myers is always on the move. He's retired, but he serves on numerous nonprofit and government committees, is involved in his local Lions Club, and trains six days a week for bike rides lasting over 200 miles. I'm big into racing tandem bikes, or I should say I was racing tandem bikes. Now I'm more into endurance riding, uh, which I really enjoy doing, which is, some have been pretty long. 200, and I think the longest one was 235 miles earlier this year. Kevin is also blind, which makes movement and transportation more of a challenge. Kevin has relied on Milwaukee County's paratransit taxi service since the program began in 2000 to get to all of his appointments and to get to work when he was working as a software developer. The service was subsidized by the county government and functioned like a low-cost rideshare service for people with disabilities, similar to a Lyft or Uber, but cheaper. But that program ended last month, on September 28th. After 23 years, county officials decided to sunset the program, and the program is not included in this year's county budget. In short, the program was cut due to cost, 
because new federal regulations for transit services for people with disabilities necessitated an investment in the program that the county deemed too costly. Milwaukee County Director of Transportation Donna Brown-Martin explains this sudden change in regulation. The trigger for this was a mandate from Federal Transit Administration stating that if your transit service, if your on-demand service did not provide for wheelchair accessible vehicles, and if it still uh, did not have the ability to uh, do drug testing of its drivers, then it's not eligible for service with federal funds. The paratransit taxi program was always an extra service from the county that went beyond the minimum requirements from the Americans with Disabilities Act. For years, the program was able to operate without wheelchair-accessible vehicles because the county also offered vans for that service. However, Brown-Martin explains that starting this year, it would be legally impossible to run the program as it has been run previously without jeopardizing federal funding for the county's whole transit system, including MCTS buses. It was not 100% funded by federal funds. Uh, it was funded by, um, funded by tax levy. Um, so county tax levy covered it. But despite the fact that it was covered by tax levy, it was still a service connected to the paratransit uh, system and um, federal transit administration rules governed our ability to move forward with that. Now, the county could have continued a similar on-demand taxi option for people with disabilities beyond the current year while meeting federal requirements that those on-demand services be wheelchair accessible and include random drug testing for drivers. But in order to do so, the county estimated in June that the program budget would have to increase threefold while also doubling fares charged to riders and limiting usage to two times per month per rider. Urban Milwaukee reporter Graham Kilmer has been reporting on this topic throughout the year, and he explains that adding money to this program from the county budget was a difficult ask to begin with. To come into compliance with these rules, the county would have had to add money to an existing contract, and that is a difficult thing for just about any county agency to do because for the last two decades, essentially, the county budget has been a mess. And so transit officials were essentially saying that to be in, considered in compliance with federal transportation rules, the program needed more money than was currently being budgeted for. The low number of riders using the taxi service also made it difficult to justify tripling the program budget. Of the nearly 25,000 trips taken using the taxi service in 2022, only about 70 people accounted for over half those trips. Here's Graham again. When they're looking at, you know, increasing the amount of funding they're going to put into the taxi contract, um, they're also looking at who the taxi service serves and how does that compare to the much larger transit plus van paratransit service? Mm -hmm. So the taxi service is same day on demand, but it's not door to door. Mm -hmm. So if you can't walk or if you have trouble walking, you probably can't use the taxi service. If you call um, a paratransit van, mm -hmm. the, uh, the people that work on the paratransit van will help you get on the van. Mm. They will 
quite literally come to the door of your home, mm-hmm. take you from the door of your home, and make sure you get safely on the van. The taxi service did not provide that, and it certainly didn't provide that for people in wheelchairs because, once again, they didn't have wheelchair-accessible vehicles. Earlier, I mentioned that the county still does offer rides to people with disabilities, and that is through the van service that Graham just mentioned. And here's where we encounter some terminology that can get confusing. Milwaukee County offers transit services for people with disabilities under the umbrella of Transit Plus. This includes transit vans, which are continuing for the foreseeable future, and transit taxis, which ended last month. The vans are wheelchair accessible, but need to be scheduled at least 24 hours in advance. The taxis were not wheelchair accessible, but were available on demand. So, to be clear, Milwaukee County is still providing paratransit rides for people with disabilities but those options need to be scheduled at least 24 hours in advance. But perhaps more importantly, these vans are not seen as reliable by many of their riders. Kevin, who we met at the beginning of the story, who trains for bicycle races over 200 miles long, is one rider who does not trust the vans to get him where he needs to go on time. He stopped using the vans years ago, and he explains why he is skeptical of their reliability. When I did use it, uh, it was before the pandemic, and uh, I was going to the north side of town to play goalball, which is a sport for people who are visually impaired or blind. It was at this elementary school, and there's been many times I could not get to the event on time uh, to play because at the time it started at, I, wasn't, I wouldn't be getting there until like an hour into it, hour and a half into it, because the van was late picking me up. So that really didn't sit well with me. And then there's numerous times I would, the activity was over and I'd be at school. Uh, my pickup time was 8.15 and I didn't get picked up till 10 o'clock at night. So here I'm sitting at this elementary school waiting and the people there were supposed to close the school at nine o'clock and now somebody had to stay there. So they're, the school's having to pay somebody more more to stay there because I'm late because the van's not picking me up. So that just really got me to really stay away from taking the van when those types of issues happened. Now, Kevin's story is from several years ago, but stories like his are common among people who utilize the taxi service. And even when the van is not egregiously late or just does not show up at all, people like Kevin still see it as unreliable because the county's definition of on time does not always match up with a more common understanding of what is on time. Here's Urban Milwaukee reporter Graham Kilmer again to explain this difference. As soon as it became clear that the taxi service was going away, paratransit riders began to share stories about how they don't really consider the van service to be reliable, certainly not for all the trips that they need to take. An example of that is that the county considers a paratransit van on time if it arrives within a 30-minute window of the scheduled pickup time, for Mm -hmm. example. So if you schedule a van for 1 o'clock and it arrives at 129, the county still considers that on time. So even when it's operating smoothly and 90% of rides are meeting that window, not all riders really consider that a feasible option for all the trips they have to make, whether it's to work or to medical appointments or what have you. And to add fuel to the skepticism, just as the taxi program was about to end, the van alternative that the county is offering to people with disabilities began to fail. And the reason for this requires some context. 
Last year, the county agreed to a seven-year contract with First Transit, a paratransit company that had been providing van service in the county previously. But before the contract even kicked in, and it's not scheduled to kick in until October 29th of this year, First Transit was bought out by the French multinational transportation provider Transdev. So now, the county was stuck in a contract with a company that they did not initially agree to a contract with for seven years. Then, when Transdev began to take over providing van rides in August, they were unable to handle the task. Here's Graham again to explain how that timing has left people who use the taxi service worried about the future. Right as the taxi program is about to sunset, about to close out as it did at the end of September, the van service begins to fail, critically fail. Transdev was not actually ready to begin taking over 100% of paratransit rides in the county because transportation officials had set it up so they were going to be moving riders over to this sole contractor, Transdev, in waves. And as soon as that first wave hit in August, they didn't have enough operators at this one contractor. And people were missing rides. They were missing appointments. They were being left stranded places. And all of a sudden, the service that the county is telling users of the taxi, this is what you'll now have to use, it's become more unreliable than it ever has been. Mm -hmm. And that was because the new single contract for the service just was not prepared. And at a public hearing, you know, officials from this company, Transdev, they said as much. They said they weren't prepared. So, I mean, that was... You know, that was a scary time for a lot of people who use the service, from what I understand from speaking with advocates and writers, because, you know, they already, many, are not entirely confident in the ability to use the van service to get to all their appointments on time, to get to work on time. And now the backup, the taxi service is gone, and the van service is falling apart. For Kevin, this level of unreliability is not acceptable not only because it limits the spontaneity that riders like him enjoyed with the taxis, but also because being chronically late can lead to larger issues like employment discrimination for people with disabilities. If you can't make it to your job, or a person can't make it to their job because of the van service being late, what is that going to make look like for any other individual that's a disability applies at the same company? What kind of, how's the employer going to look at this? thinking that if this one employee is late to work often, what are they going to think about another person with a disability? Are they going to be able to make it to work on time? Milwaukee County Director of Transportation Donna Brown-Martin said that the van's unreliability this summer came down to staffing, that more drivers are needed to be hired in order to get back to an acceptable level of reliability. While she acknowledged concerns about van reliability based on what happened this summer and says she understands why people are skeptical, Brown Martin said that she still expects the van service to provide a reliable transportation option for the long term. Long term, fully expect that that's going to be the case as soon as we get all of our drivers on board, we get them trained how we want them trained uh, to deliver the service. Uh, it's I believe that the service will get better and we will work to ensure that it stays um, at at a level and a quality that they expect. So where do we go from here? 
For one, the paratransit taxi service, as it was previously known, is gone. Nobody got talked to. Not transit advocates, not reporters, not county officials. Nobody believes it will be coming back as it was. And for the time being, the vans will be the only option for people who previously used the taxis. But there is a chance that some kind of on-demand transportation service, like the taxis, returns. The county has assembled a task force made up primarily of people who use the taxi service to find an alternative that meets federal requirements that can be implemented in the future. In addition, the Southeast Wisconsin Regional Planning Commission, or Sewer PAC, is looking at other models throughout the country to see what can be done here. And Kevin Myers is on that task force, and he says that he is committed to finding a way to bring back an on-demand service so that people with disabilities can handle when life inevitably becomes unpredictable. What if somebody that, that's working and their child gets sick at daycare? You can't schedule a van, you know, a van that you need to schedule 24 hours of advance. You don't know your child's going to suddenly come down sick. So that's where the on-demand transportation service needs to be, needs to exist here in Milwaukee County. For Lake Effect, I'm Sam Woods. That was Lake Effect Sam Woods speaking with Milwaukee County Director of Transportation Donna Brown-Martin, urban Milwaukee reporter Graham Kilmer, and on-demand transit advocate Kevin Myers. Since these interviews, Milwaukee County held $1.2 million in reserve to fund a future on-demand paratransit program, but right now, no such program exists. We'll take one more break and then hear how NPR's Scott Detrow approaches his political coverage in a swing state like Wisconsin. Keep listening to Lake Effect on Milwaukee's NPR. This is Like Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. As a reporter, Scott Detrow has covered Republican and Democratic presidential campaigns, Congress, the White House, and even the war in Ukraine from Kyiv. But this year, Detrow stepped into a new role, host of Weekend All Things Considered on NPR. Now, he also contemplates topics like blues music, new literature, and Popeye's chicken sandwiches. Detro joined WUWM's Mayan Silver in studio on a visit to Milwaukee in October to talk about his transition and how to approach the 2024 election. One thing that people might not know is that you actually went to Marquette University High School. Can you let us in on your Milwaukee roots? <laughs> yeah, my family uh, moved to Milwaukee when I was 16. Um, you know, I grew up in New Jersey and then we moved out here and like it's kind of on one hand, it seems like it might be a worst case scenario. Like you are moving in the middle of your sophomore year of high school. Congratulations, good luck. But actually, like it was, didn't feel that way immediately at first. But it was it was a wonderful experience, and um, I quickly connected and made really close friends in Milwaukee that I'm still in touch with, and and basically uh, lived here for all of high school. And it felt like it felt very much like home, and it felt like a very important part of my childhood being in Milwaukee. So it's. It's nice to be back, and um, it's always been nice to have that baseline experience of living here and knowing here when, obviously, uh, Wisconsin is a very important state for the stuff that I cover. So when I when I'm here reporting stories, it's always nice to feel like a little bit like, okay, 
I know this place really well. Yeah, that's the thing. You covered the 2016 Wisconsin primary when you were a campaign reporter following the Republican candidates. Yeah. Um, there were two primaries here that April. It was Clinton and Sanders on the left yeah. and Cruz, um, Texas Senator Ted Cruz and Trump on the right. Cruz beat Trump. Sanders beat Clinton in Wisconsin. What do you remember from your time in Wisconsin covering that primary? Two two images. One was being this big uh, big event at Serb Hall, and it just it was really fun to be there, just because like there are so many iconic political scenes from from the years uh, there. Like I think a lot of people who cover politics or follow politics. The book Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail by Hunter Thompson is like this big looming thing. And there's these scenes of he's following around like the 1972 primary candidates to Serb Hall. So it's fun being there. And then the thing I remember is covering a Donald Trump, Sarah Palin joint rally and Sarah Palin coming out on stage to um, to the tunes of 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 uh, like. Like the like the jock jams, like do 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 do, and I was like, this is a really, it's a really weird scene. Like, what what is going on here? But I feel like that kind of was like an early indicator of just kind of like the, um, in a way that she was like a predecessor to the politics of Donald Trump, of kind of like, this is what a lot of voters want, and it's not necessarily conversations about policy. It's kind of like politics as this like this cultural identifier, almost entertainment moment. Well, and, you know, something that I think you've reported on was how unpopular Trump was at that time in Wisconsin in 2016. But then, of course, things changed. And um, he ended up winning Wisconsin and winning the presidency. That's the elephant in the room that's continuing to, Mm -hmm. you know, rear its head in this 2024 election. How how have campaigns become so much more high stakes yeah. now? I think like, I'm trying to think back to that moment and and you're reminding me, yeah, like like covering politics, it's, it's so dangerous to not learn lessons from what you've covered before. And it's also sometimes equally dangerous to learn lessons from what you've covered. Because I remember like, like some of the things that I thought were very clear based on evidence in the 2016 primaries was, well, Maybe maybe um, rally sizes don't actually tell us that much about how popular a candidate is because Bernie Sanders got these massive rallies. He had those huge rallies in Madison, Wisconsin, right? Like he had he had like this this kind of like cult following, but he ended up ultimately losing the primary to Hillary Clinton. More people voted for Hillary Clinton than Bernie Sanders. Like so, it tells us something, but maybe it doesn't necessarily tell me anything, you know. And then I was applying that kind of wrongly to to the Trump campaign of like he's got these big rallies, but does he really have this broad base? We saw kind of like a, a soft ceiling on his support within the Republican primary. Turns out he did have enough enthusiasm to win the presidency, and it turns out uh, I think. You know, that that election made clear that partisanship goes so far that uh, on on both sides, and we're seeing it again with this election, at the end of the day, whether something is in your camp, whether someone is in your camp or not from your party is almost like the main indicator. And it's really just at the margins of is is a candidate's behavior or personality so much that somebody's either going to not vote for the party they usually vote for or do the very extreme in the current environment step of voting for the other party. Well, I mean, we could be seeing a Trump-Biden rematch in mm-hmm. 2024. I mean, that could it could not happen. And many people, including Biden, 
are sounding the alarm. Trump has four indictments, has been found civilly liable for sexual assault, and has suggested that General Mike Milley, um, the former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, should be executed for standing up against him in 2020. Yet a majority of Republican voters still support Trump. What do you say to people who say that NPR can't normalize Trump and treat the potential of a second Trump candidacy as business as usual? Well, look, it's an enormous challenge, right? And it became even more of a challenge based on what Trump did after the 2020 election, which was deny the results of an election and try to overthrow the results of an election, try to stay in power, even though he had lost the election and his term as president had ended. That culminated in in the attack on the U.S. Capitol. And now we're seeing him face criminal charges for that. I mean, he is going to face a parade of trials. So on one hand, you have to keep that in mind. On the other hand, you have to report on what is happening. And I feel like so many people want to talk about quote, normalization and want to talk about, did the media give Trump too much attention in 2016? And I think there's very fair conversations to have, but I think there's also a danger in not covering what's going on in not telling people what a candidate is saying and being clear about what he wants to do. I mean, I think Trump has been very clear about what he would want to do if he retakes the White House. And a lot of that has to do with personal retribution more than any sort of like policy agenda. And I think it's important to talk about that. So how do you do it, right? What's the responsible way to do that reporting? And I think it is putting as much context as possible around it. And I think it is important to point out to people as much as possible that he is somebody who's facing criminal charges. He is somebody who was impeached twice. He is somebody who continues to deny the clear results of an election that he lost. And at the same time, you've you've also talked about this. It's a time of increasing fatigue when it comes to politics. People just don't want to hear about it. Yeah. They don't necessarily like the options they have. They might not be interested in politics in general. How do you, as someone on NPR, sort of make that, make politics accessible or make these issues important to people again? Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, like I've, I've actually I've switched jobs and I'm no longer a full time political reporter. Now I host All Things Considered on the weekends. So I'm I'm doing a ton of political coverage, but I'm also thinking about what are the other stories happening? And I think one thing that we saw when Biden took office and it was a lot less of like, oh, my God, it seems like Washington, D.C. is on fire every day is that we were able to air more international news. We were able to air more like climate and science-based news. A lot of the things that are really important that just in that era, there wasn't as much space to talk about. So I think it is important to make sure, are we covering this in the right amount? Obviously, there's going to be this like seemingly existential election, and that's going to require a lot of our time, but there's other stuff to talk about too. When it comes to like making politics accessible and making people want to keep listening... I feel like it's the strength that that public radio does so well of of telling people's stories, bringing you along to meet people, to learn about people, to learn about what how this affects their lives, telling stuff through stories, not just saying like this, not just lecturing. This is an important thing you need to know, but kind of like the show, not tell. Get out there into the world and bring people along and teach them something and make them interested in the story. Part of public radio and going into public radio is it allows you to think about so many things. I mean, your show, it's weekend, all things considered. Yes. And so that's They're one serious of... about that, too. <laughs> Has there been something where you're like, I really don't want to consider that? And then they're like, you have to consider it. There's so many things to consider each day. That's, that's been the biggest surprise. I mean, like, obviously not a surprise. It's in the name. But like, you know, as, as like a White House reporter... 
you feel like you're juggling a lot of things because everything that happens in the world involves the president, right? You're like, you know, some sort of crisis happens in another country. You're trying to get the president or the national security team's reaction to it. Um, and, and that changes from day to day. But uh, but in this new job, like I'll be doing a, st- a feature on on voters. Then I OK, now five minutes later, you have to do a really intense um, interview about uh, police killing of an unarmed man. Right. And then you have to wildly shift gears and go eat like a chicken sandwich on the radio. And you have to like reset your brain over and over again and prep yourself over and over again. And that's why like you're working with a great production team, because sometimes you walk out of interview on one topic and you walk into the next door studio and you're like, okay, what are we talking about now? And somebody says, here's all the research I put together. You can skim it real quick and get yourself in the brain space to have a totally different conversation. So, like, I appreciate that. But, man, it's like it's, it's wild sometimes how quickly you have to shift your brain. So I was wondering, you know, to be that sort of well-rounded, holistic person, is there something in your history? I mean, you've spent a lot of time in public radio. You were a member station reporter. But I'm wondering if there's something in your history that you feel like you can draw from, like a hobby or some experience that you had that you draw upon to be this sort of like, you know, public radio host? I I guess I've always, I always love to read and continue to love to read and love to read everything, like any genre, history, fiction, short stories, novels, poems. Like I've always just like consumed information, you know, like uh, I remember... You mentioned high school. I remember like struggling through math class and like sometimes sitting there skimming like a Newsweek or a Time magazine in the back row and paying more attention to like current events than math, which worked out okay for me in life, I think. Sorry to my math teacher. Um, (laughs) But like just just always like sucking in information. And I feel like over time I kind of developed the ability to like read pretty quickly and retain stuff, which has been like very helpful when you're like, okay. Now we're talking about this topic. Read as much as you can for for an hour and then get into the studio and interview somebody about it. So that's that's been really, really helpful. And I think like part of the appeal that, that drew me to wanting to be a reporter to begin with. Well, it's been wonderful chatting with you, Scott. Um, thank you for joining me on Lake Effect. Thanks. It's great to be here. Scott Detrow was the host of Weekend All Things Considered. He spoke with WUWM's Mayan Silver on a visit to Milwaukee in October. And that's Lake Effect for today. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Joy Powers, Sam Woods, and Excret Nunez join me producing Lake Effect each week with help from Robert Larry. Becky Mortensen is our executive producer. We also heard from Lena Tran, Emily Files, and Mayan Silver from the WUWM News team this week. Jason Reavy is our studio engineer. Michelle Maternowski is our digital manager. Valeria Navarra-Viegas is our digital editor. Trapper Shep wrote our theme music. If you've missed any of Lake Effect this week, you can find all of our conversations at wuwm.com. If you'd like to take the show on the go, simply download the Lake Effect podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. On Monday, we'll bring a special music edition of the show with songs from some of the guests we've had in our series live at Lake Effect. Thank you so much for joining us today, right here on listener-supported 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. NPR.